It's the middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. Taking a step back to look at things with a new perspective. It's the middle with Anthony Weiner. I'm Anthony Weiner. Thank you for meeting me in the middle, an hour every Saturday at 2 o'clock when we take some steps away from the hot takes of the far left and the far right and try to bring some context to the news of the week or a subject that doesn't find its way into the middle of the conversation enough. It's so great to have you along here on Talk Radio 77 WABC, the most powerful radio station in the nation. Every Saturday from 2 to 3, and then after we're done here at 3 o'clock, Curtis Lewa comes in for Left versus Right. You can listen to us on the WABC Radio app or WABCRadio.com, or you could always get us in the form of a podcast. As soon as we go off the air here, Ryan, I think, does his magic and turns this into a podcast, and you get a chance to see it. We have Rich on the other side of glass, Kevin helping us out. Thank you so much for being here. It's a beautiful day outside, a beautiful fall day, Indian summer perhaps. A great time to be listening to the radio. I'm at, at Rep Wiener on Twitter. Wiener, W-A-B-C at gmail.com. If you'd like to get in the queue to have a conversation here, the listeners really are what make this show go around. 800-848-WABC. A busy and exciting week in the Wiener household. Jordan is back on the ice playing hockey. The NHL is back in, in session. Don't worry. I promise to go at least one week without taking some part of the opening here to talk about what's going on in hockey. The Rangers are off to a good start. Islanders, not so much. Um Huma recorded an episode tomorrow. It's going to be on tomorrow morning of the Cats Roundtable. And I know that that happened, but I don't know anything about what she said. She's out promoting her book, Both And. And I asked her, how did the interview with John go? And she said, oh. I'm like, what do you mean, oh? What does that mean? She said, well, you have to listen. I'm like, well, you can tell me. You recorded it. You can tell me what happened. She said, no, you can ask John. He'll tell you. He's your boss. So I texted John, and I said, John, how did the interview go? He says, oh, it was fun. So I don't know what to expect. It can't be good. By the way, if you haven't gotten a copy of Huma's book, please do. You can skip it. You just go and look the parts about me, tear them all out, and just look at the amazing stuff that she's done in government, the interesting story she tells about campaign 2016 and campaign 2008 before that. It's an amazing book. And also this week, you know, Jordan today is on a a birthday party play date. And how far you – know, he's 10 and a half. He's going to be 11 soon. How far has it come? The parents – of the party sent us a waiver to sign, a waiver of responsibility. I don't know where they're going. Not my job. I'm here working and whom is on duty. So hopefully I didn't sign the waiver. So I'll, hopefully he comes back in one piece. I'm sure he will. Um, and this week was also the first time in a couple of years because of COVID, they have kind of open school night. It's not where you go to learn about your kid. That's kind of a different, those are like parent-teacher conferences. But you go in. You get to look at his classroom. You get to meet some of his teachers. You get to see Jordan goes to this fancy emo school I've described before. And he's a fifth grader, right? So the very first class you go into, you go into all of their teachers, and they all show you what the curriculum is, and they talk you through a little of their philosophy and where you can, how you can help with the class. And the first one is history. And I'm like, all right, this is my, this is my jam. I'm going to be, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to be, I'm going to understand the stuff, and I'm going to go talk to Jordan about it. I'm going to be his inspiration. Not that Jordan tells me anything about his homework. <clears throat> and they and the the teacher puts up on the screen what they're working on presently, and he's in the fifth grade. Okay, I just want to stress that. And he says, uh, she says, matter of factly, we're studying the standard of Ur. I did I I don't, <laughs> and apparently that's it refers to the part of summer uh, Sumer, which is a Mesopotamia a part of Mesopotamia. And the standard of Ur is this artifact from the third millennium. And, you know, Kevin is now nodding his head. Of course, everyone knows that. Well, put it this way. I didn't even know what a standard was. You know, I know, like, standards and measures and things like that. And I'm like, so I start out with my head down under the desk while they're – and I'm, I'm looking up, what does this even mean? What is the standard of Ur? And sure enough, a conspicuous object, such as a banner formally carried at the top of a pole – and used to mark a rallying point, especially in battle or to serve as an emblem. This is a long way of saying 
I am not smarter than a fifth grader because that's what Jordan is in the fifth grade. He's learning these interesting things. And it didn't get much better after that. The math was over my head. All of it was. I am not smarter than a fifth grader. But it does it does make me think, you know, we're starting, I've mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, we're going to start a podcast that's more like what the middle is. By the way, you can get keys to the city. The other podcast we do, it's more about city problems. We looked hard at ranked choice voting, something we've talked about in this episode. You can get that on the Red Apple Podcast Network. It's called Keys to the City. Anyway, so we're starting to, to, to formulate plans for the middle extended edition, which is going to be kind of an episode like what we do here on Saturdays, but do it during the middle of the week. And one of the things I think I'm going to include is Am I Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, where we take some of Jordan's lessons or some of the questions that he has and see if I can if I can uh, get them right. Um, also, we are now, as we sit here, 24 days before the election. If you are a New Yorker, you missed your last day to register to vote. In a lot of places, in the next coming days, I think on Monday, um, voting starts in Georgia. There are kind of these three races a lot of people are keeping an eye on. Georgia, they had a debate last night. We may talk about a little bit on left versus right with Curtis. That's the one of Herschel Walker, the former football player, is challenging the incumbent, uh, Warnock. I watched the debate because I'm that's the kind of nerd I am. I watched it. Interesting debate. I thought that Warner won basically by exceeding expectations. But there was this one weird moment where, you know, Warner, uh, uh, Warner, for some reason, he makes some claims that are not true. And one of them is that he used to be in law enforcement. And when this came up in the debate, he took out a badge, which was a fake, <laughs> fake badge. It was just the weirdest thing. Um and that is, that you know, it's funny. Sometimes there are these little off-key moments that become what people remember from the debate. I think people are going to remember that. I don't know if it, how much how much difference it makes. Warnock is leading by a couple of points there. Georgia, Georgia's electorate is very inelastic, and I say that to mean that there are high numbers of people that are committed to Democrat or Republican. And it looks like Warnock is ahead by a couple of points. Pennsylvania, another interesting race that a lot of people are keeping an eye on. John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor had been leading most of the way against Mehmet Oz, and the polls have closed recently, and some of it has to do with questions about Fetterman's health. He, um, They are going to be having a debate soon. By the way, I point out all these debates happening. We still don't have any debate scheduled here in New York. You can go look at my rant about that a couple of weeks ago. But Fetterman, he had a stroke recently on the campaign and now requires, now has trouble with auditory signals, meaning words he has trouble translating but he can but when they're printed out he can and so he's going to be using a device that is going to um, let him operate normally he's going to read the words but he had a uh, an interview this week on NBC where he described some of these problems I I got to tell you don't overplay your hand if you're Mehmet Oz like his staff I saw was going out putting out nasty tweets about maybe he should have had more vegetables and and criticizing him. There are a lot of people out there within the sound of my voice and who vote in Pennsylvania who have family members who are in some ways, you know, in some ways are of limited capacities in some way. Maybe they're in a wheelchair. Maybe they have a disease or maybe they have a stroke. There are three members of the United States Senate today that have, that, that have had strokes. So I would be careful not to overplay it, but that race is tightened. And in Wisconsin, it looks like Ron Johnson is pulling ahead now. Look, pulling ahead. He's ahead by a few points. In that race, one thing I would encourage you, and I've seen this a lot recently, there have been some polls about Hochul and Zeldin. Don't put too much stock in a poll. The way to the way to look at polls is to average them. One, there are different qualities of polls. Two, there are polls that that you know they have plus or minus five, six, four or five or six points. So there are websites out there you can look at the average of the polls. That's always the one to look at. Looking at average of any one poll is is folly. Now, looking at the last poll and saying, okay. Should I give that more value than one that came out a month ago? Certainly. I think that's fair to do. But be careful not to look too hard at at, um, at any one poll. So let's do some numbers of the week. And uh, the first one is 8.7. 8.7% is the increase you're going to get in your cost of living adjustment under Social Security. If that sounds high, it's because inflation is high. And it's probably not as high Meaning, so the COLA should probably be even higher because the way they come up with that number is they take the CPI, the, the the consumer price index. But many senior citizens aren't buying new laptops and aren't buying automobiles, so rent should be counted higher, medicine should be counted higher. So I think actually the COLA should be even higher than that. Um, but that's a ch- that's that's going to be an increase that they're going to get the highest I think in forty years. The next number is one point three. A study came out this year this week 
that took a look at men in their early 20s who were working in the 1960s and 70s and then tracked their income throughout their entire working life. And they determined that if you were in a union and everything else was held constant, you made $1.3 million more over the course of your life than if you were not in a union. Um, Union membership is at an ebb in this country, but there's been a lot of activity recently, and that's what made me look at that. There's no doubt about it that union membership increases um, increases your income, but now it's been kind of studied in a tangible way. The next number is five. That is the number of presidents that have been subpoenaed by Congress. Um, this week we had another January 6th. It looks like probably the final January 6th hearing since it looks mm, fairly certain that the Republicans will take over control at least of the House of Representatives. So the January 6th committee will have to start wrapping up and they subpoenaed President Donald Trump. Now, I don't, you know, I, I don't like to talk about Donald Trump on this show very much. It gets everyone into a tizzy, so I'm not going to focus much on it here. I Just for those of you who did not watch these hearings, the only kind of interesting new thing, and it might have crossed the transom as you've looked at the news, is they had videotape of what was going on with the elected officials, with the members of the House and Senate, as they were trying to rally help. Um, during the time that the insurrection, that the riots were going on. And I got to tell you, if you want to take a positive thing out of all of that, you have John Thune, Mitch McConnell, Scalise, Pelosi, Democrats, Republicans, Schumer, all in there. By the way, Scalise, Scalise, he was shameless. Scalise, a couple of months ago, had a press conference. He says, what did Nancy, how come Nancy didn't call for help? She, He's literally in the video as Nancy's calling for help. Anyway, but. They're calling the vice president. They're calling the, the the attorney general. It's Democrats and Republicans all together kind of working to save the country and to protect it and to figure out how to rally. It was, you know, look, it was a moment of stress, but I think ultimately it was a fairly positive thing. It's two interesting – that was one interesting takeaway. Another interesting takeaway is they got millions and millions of, of text messages that, and emails that the um, – Secret Service had tried to delete, even though they had been subpoenaed not to. They tried to delete them, but many of them were recovered. There is not a single mention of evacuating the president. Even though the ellipse is actually fairly close to the White House, there was no mention of that at all. They, they, they Everyone knew where where that they had to protect, that they didn't have to protect. There was no danger to the president here, no Antifa or anything like that. This was a, an attack on the on the Capitol. So those were interesting things. By the way, if you're curious about who the other four presidents that were subpoenaed, I was. I looked it up. John Tyler and John Quincy Adams. One was the president at the time. One was the former president when they were investigating Secretary of State Daniel Webster for having this off-the-budget slush fund. Um, And Tyler cooperated. Quincy Quincy cooperated. John Quincy Adams cooperated in a more limited way. Truman was subpoenaed after he left office because there was an appointment of a Treasury official that was accused of being a – a communist sympathizer, he refused to participate or refused to cooperate arguing separation of powers. And coincidentally, or interestingly, Nixon, who was the fifth, when he was subpoenaed, he used the Truman the Truman defense as part of his case so he shouldn't have to. It turned out to be a moot point. Scotus said he would have to turn over and comply, but he resigned before he had a chance to. So those are the of, the, of some of the numbers. And the final numbers of the week, um, the survey – um, a survey is done each year by an organization called Morning Consult. They are a lobby at lobbying. They are a polling and media organization. They do they survey the popularity of all fifty governors. And so, if you're in the you're in our our neighborhood here, let me give you some of the numbers. Kathy Hochul ranks thirty one. She's fifty two percent positive, thirty seven percent negative. Phil Murphy in New Jersey, Democrat, ranks twenty second, fifty four percent positive, and thirty eight percent negative and Connecticut we the, the in our local in the tri-state area he is the most popular of the of the the three he's 11th 58% positive and 36% negative if you're curious who's the very least popular let me see this it is Kate Brown she's the governor of Oregon democrat 40% positive 56% negative and then Doug Ducey of Arizona is close behind but um, in these types of things, you can see 50s are, are pretty good. 60s are, like, amazing. But the top two, the top two governors who are in their 70s, 
Um, they have something in common. And I'm going to tell you when we get back from the break uh, who they are and what they have in common. And you might be a little bit surprised. And while we're at the break, I'll ask Rich if he can guess. And a little later, we're going to have Curtis Lieba coming in left versus right at 3 o'clock. It's great to have you along in the middle. We're talking about some politics today and who are the most popular governors in the country. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Finding new ways to make change. Reaching across the aisle to work with both sides. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. us back in talk radio 77 wabc this is the middle we talk about a little less about what the fringe wants to talk about a left what the hard left and hard right want to talk about we talk about the kind of commonalities that we have and in interest of that i was taking a, a look at some of the numbers that came out recently about the most popular governors in the country one out of curiosity but also two to see if there was anything that we could learn that might be apropos to our show here the middle and sure enough I found some very interesting things. And I also was interested in this other question is, if I were Lee Zelder, what would I be doing? What kind of a campaign would I be running? A few people saw me go on this rant, and I talked a little bit on on John uh, Katsimatidis' show, top-rated show the other day, about that there should be more debates. And a lot of people said, well, why are you still voting for Zeldin? And I explained all the reasons I wasn't. Anyway, it got me thinking about, well, what kind of a race would I be running if I was Lee Zeldin? Because I think he's making some mistakes. But anyway, we're looking at this list of, the, of all 50 states, all 50 governors, who's the most popular. And I said, you know, if you look at, at Ned Lamont, he's the 11th most popular. That's pretty good. You're in the top 10% roughly, and he has a 58% positive. And when it comes to favorability ratings, we're such a divided country that if you have 50s, you're doing pretty well. I mean, President uh, uh, President Biden is like 43 or something like that right now. If you're in the 60s, you're doing outstanding. Well, there are two governors that are in the 70s. And they have something in common. They're both Republicans. But they're not Republicans in Republican states. They both represent overwhelmingly Democratic states. I don't know if you're going to know either of these names, but one of them, the number one most popular governor in the country, is a guy named Phil Scott. He's the governor of Vermont. Yes, Bernie Sanders, Vermont. And to give you an idea... Um, he has 73% favorables and only a 17% negative as a Republican in Vermont. And to, I'll just give you the math. I mean, there's the, the registration of people who identify or lean Democrat is 57% to 29% for Republican. That's even more than New York. New York's 53-28 to give you some context. And and the, the guy's name is Phil Scott, as I, as I, I mentioned, um, he got elected, he got reelected in 2018. Bernie Sanders got 67% of the vote the same day. Governor Scott beat the Democrat by 15%. And, uh, so who's number two? Number two is a guy named Larry Hogan. He is the governor of Maryland. He has a 70% approval and a 23% disapproval. He is a Republican, as I mentioned, but Maryland is most certainly not. Um, it is 55-31 in a term of registration and lean advantage for um, for the Democrats. And the, the guy who's coming in, he's term limited. The guy who's coming in is almost certain to be, um, who's leading all the polls is going to, probably going to be a Democrat. So what do we learn there? Um, what are we learning? Well, if you take a dive into how these guys have done it, um, I mean, they're basically, they're, they're Republicans. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They're small government guys. They're guys who believe in lower taxes, but they have other things in common. One is that they are not crazies on social issues. They're both pro-choice. One of them is pro-choice straight down the line, and one of them says, I'm pro-choice, but I don't believe the government should be involved here. I'm a conservative. I take that kind of conservative position. Um, 
Scott, for example, in in Vermont, said that he would veto any budget that grows faster than the growth of underlying the underlying economy. Um, he called for eliminating the tax on Social Security benefits. I mean, he's a conservative. Um, now, on guns, for example, like he passed, even though this is Vermont, a very pro-gun state, he says, I'm going to pass and sign legislation on bump stock devices, these things that turn um, turn non-automatic weapons into kind of modify them to make them fire like the automatic weapons. He's into favoring school choice and and local control. So the, so and Hogan is very similar. Hogan is a very similar type candidate. But what don't they do? They don't run hard into these hot button far right positions that often wind up chewing up and spitting out candidates. And it's apropos of the Senate races we have going on today. We have a lot of what should have been Republican-leaning races that are very close because the candidates decided to be lightning rods. And bringing it back here to New York, Lee Zeldin, who was the nominee for governor here in New York, a congressman from the eastern end of Long Island, chose not to take what I think could be called the Pataki model. The Pataki, I say the Pataki model. Pataki was our last Republican statewide office holder. He was a three times reelected governor, sometimes appears here on, on the airwaves here. I didn't vote for him a single time. He was Republican. I'm a Democrat. But he didn't poke the finger in the eye on choice. He was fairly pro-immigration within limits. He was, you know, he was smart. He said, I'm going to govern a Democratic state. I have to go about this differently than my national Republicans are. And so what did Lee Zeldin do? So Lee Zeldin set out as basically a national Republican candidate, supported Donald Trump, supported this, basically, you know, supported this these lies about the election being stolen. When when the choice, you know, uh, uh, um, said he supported this this a constitution, uh, or the constitutional overturning of a right to to abortion, and as a result, he's now. I mean, you can pick a number. I mean, obviously, anything can happen. I think there's. I I mean, I would be stunned if he won, but he he could. He's leaning really hard into a different way of being a candidate, and I think. And by the way, I forgot to think about the number eight hundred eight four eight WABC eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. What Larry Hogan has shown in Maryland, and what Phil Scott has shown in Vermont is the path forward. And one of the things that Hogan did very successfully in Maryland is made an argument that I don't think that Zeldin is doing is doing artfully enough. And that is this idea of, you know what, let's have a Democratic, a Republican check on on power in um, on power in Albany. That was a very successful thing that Charlie Baker did, for example, in Massachusetts when he was a Republican governor of Massachusetts. And I think that in an age of polarization, if you want to cross over to try to win the support of the other side, you've got to try to do, I know see people think I don't succeed at this, is kind of acknowledging the legitimate concerns of the other side. And also, there, don't unnecessarily antagonize voters like, you know, as polarized as things are today, if you're running in a new in New York, which is overwhelmingly Democratic, and I gave you the numbers and you're running against a reasonably unknown incumbent governor in Hochul, the last thing you should do is be saying, all right, I am basically a national fringe candidate, which is although I don't I don't know him personally and I didn't serve with him, is how if you look at Zeldin's record, you would say he is. And even around issues like immigration and crime, they're perfect opportunities for Lee Zeldin to say, listen, I'm not a national guy here. I'm a New York guy. And I know that immigration has a different is a different has, has a different patina here in New York than it than it does in other places. And so I think that there is a pathway for Republican. Now, the problem is it's too far gone. Zeldin would have called me a year ago, <laughs> two years ago. It would have been an unusual call to get, I admit. But if you would have said, listen, how would you do this? I'd say that Pataki kind of showed the way. Now, the state is much more democratic than it was even when Pataki, you know, even Pataki wouldn't have been Pataki today. But that kind of and another thing they have in common, environmental concerns, you know, being good environmentalists, um, the way that Teddy Roosevelt and traditional Republicans had always been being 
small government in the traditional sense of the word, meaning it extends to choice and it extends to these other these other things as well that 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 moderate Democrats can kind of get their their arms around. I think there was an opportunity for Zeldin to steal this election. I mean, you got to be careful when you say that. I don't mean steal. Literally, I mean sneak it away from the Democrats, despite this being a very blue state. We could. We're not that different than Maryland. We have urban pockets. We have. We. We. we I mean, it's not a perfect analogy. We're not that. We're very different from Vermont. But again, there is a roadmap to how you do this. And if you look at the bottom, the bottom, you know, like Doug Ducey in Arizona, again, a purple state that he's governing from the far right. Uh, I just think it's a mistake. And and since this program is called the middle, and since we talk about the danger of pursuing policies that seem like they're hard left and hard right, I think looking at Larry Hogan in Maryland, looking at Phil Scott in Vermont are are good ways to go. Now, an interesting thing that you might say, well, wait a minute, isn't Larry Hogan term limited? Maybe that's one of the things that keeps you popular. <laughs> it's true. Kathy Hochul has people attacking her on the TV because she's running for office. She's making this. Well, I mean, that, that could be it, but that doesn't explain the, the Phil Scott phenomenon. Can you imagine? I mean, just to repeat that this guy, a Republican, was on the same ballot at the same time in 2018 as Bernie Sanders was and basically matched his performance. Came up a little bit less. But, you know, he won by 15 points with Bernie Sanders, the icon of the of the uh, what do we call it around here? The woke left. So um, so that that's what I think that should have been done if you were if you were Lee Zeldin. Now, I hate to keep beating this drum. Um, and like I said, 800-848-WABC, the board is filling up a little bit. If you'd like to get in, Ryan will take your information. I'll get you on the air. Um, there should be more debates. That's one way that Zeldin can show that he's not the boogeyman that – that uh, that Hochul is portraying. But take a look at Hochul's spots. She is criticizing Zeldin for his role a- after the election for for stoking m- misinformation, et cetera, and for voting to take away New Yorkers rights to have their votes counted, because if you throw out the election, you throw out our votes, too. And his and his intemperate. His temperate words on, cho- on choice. Now, he's trying to dial them back, saying, well, I wouldn't do anything on that. But but he did say he celebrated it at the time. Um, let's, if you take away those kind of hot-button items, what are you left with? You're left with who's better on the economy, and I think a lot of people have started to believe the Republicans are better on the economy. I disagree, obviously, but like, like you can make that argument. Who's better on law and order? Something the Republicans clearly seem to have the control of that particular issue. Um and, you know, things like size of government, the con- traditional conser- con- Republican things. And, the con- you know, and I, I, I think that would have been a much smarter way from doing it. Now, not to be counterfactual, you remember that primary. He might have lost the primary to Andrew Giuliani or to or to um, or Tash Torino or to the or to the rich guy. He might have lost that if he didn't shoe all the way to the right. That might be where the Republican primary voters are. That could be the case. I'm not a Republican primary voter. That could be the case. But I think that if you make the argument that it, you need to let me survive this primary by not supporting and, – and Hogan did it. He had a primary. Scott did it. He had a primary and was able to survive in those things. So uh, so that's my kind of opening salvo on 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 where we, we stand 24 days in. I kind of wish we had a, a different, more middle-centered election here in New York. We do not. I think Kathy Hochul is going to wind up winning. I'm going to be voting for her, but I have some reservations. I'll, I'll admit I, I don't like the way that she's pursued this campaign. I don't think that the stadium in Buffalo is a particularly great idea. But at the end of the day, you know, a woman's right to choose is an existential thing right now and something that I believe in uh, very much. I believe in um, – I, I, I think that – that some of the things that, that Zeldin has said is have led, led me to believe he doesn't understand the structure of government terribly well. But all that being said – these are all things that come up in debate, and we're not going to have them. Let's go to some calls, 800-848-WABC, 800-848-2222. We're talking politics until the top of the hour, at which time Curtis will come in for left versus right. We're going to talk about some of the issues here in New York. And also we're going to do a little bit of a kind of a before and after preview of the elections as well. Um, but let's go to the calls right now. First, let's start with Max in Manhattan. Max, thank you for joining us. Yes, Anthony, thank you for taking my call. Um, you know, it's very easy to say that uh, when someone is um, – they don't want Zeldin to uh, 
to be the next governor. But we would say, but what's being said parenthetically there is, if you don't want Zeldin in, it means you want more crime, you want more murder, because he's supporting Alvin Bragg, and Alvin Bragg is the cause right now of all this constant crime and continuous crime. Uh, I, I mean, I appreciate that viewpoint. I, Alvin Bragg's not the responsibility for crime in Nassau and Suffolk. He's not the, the for crime in Chicago and L.A. Crime is up all over the country. And remember what the, the prosecutors, all they do is they take cases and decide as best they can what justice would be in these individual cases. Judges still in most cases have to decide whether or not they want to turn someone out on the street or put them in prison. That's ultimately a judge. Now, those people are elected as well. But, you know, in terms of Lee Zeldin, Lee Zeldin said the other day, I'm going to declare a state of emergency. I'm going to throw out prosecutors. All of that stuff is not that's not the way government works. One other thing about Bragg and um, and Max, you you live in, in New York County. You live in Manhattan. If you know, Bragg was elected by your neighbors. He is an elected official in a democracy. It doesn't you don't always get the the right guy. Don't, don't you don't always get the guy you think is right in a democracy. You're guaranteed to have your say, not guaranteed to get your way. And he'll you'll have an opportunity to decide whether or not to reelect Bragg. But it's not for one ex, one elected official to decide whether other elected officials should be thrown out. That's not the way our democracy works. Let's go to a break here on the middle. It's a great conversation. The board is filling up 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Thank you for joining us on the middle. I'll see you on the other side. Talk Radio 77 WABC. The Middle with Anthony Weiner, 77 WABC. And welcome back to The Middle. I'm Anthony Weiner. That's ABC bringing us back in when Smokey sings their ode to Motown music. That is a fun song. Uh, we're talking a little bit about 24 days out, what to expect in the election. I'm going back and taking a look at... I think a way that a Republican could win in New York State, and it's not the way, in my view, that Lee Zeldin is doing it. I mean, look, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to kind of stand in and have a debate and be Kathy Hochul. If I mean, I can do it. I could probably do both sides of it. That's one of the. That's what. That's either my gift or my curse. But as we take calls at 800-848-WABC, some of it is that I think that there is, using my experience in 25 years or so in, in public life representing a district out in Queens and in Brooklyn that was fairly conservative. I represented Southern Brooklyn, an area that voted uh, that voted Republican even when I was was there. I was the city councilman, and that was a district. I actually lost that part of the district the, the last time I ran in 2010. In Queens, things like Middle Village and Broad Channel and Rockaway and, and Glendale, these are conservative parts of, 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 the, of this, the city. And for those citizens, they if they made their list of, all their positions on things, I probably did not check a lot of them. But what I did, I think I showed them I had common sense around crime. I was the sponsor of the cops bill to bring more police officers here to New York City. I think I showed them I was, you know, had some common sense around foreign affairs, being a hawk on Israel and things like that. But there were some issues that I felt differently on that I felt very strongly for for single payer health care and, and things like that. All of that being said, I mean, when I ran for mayor, I ran on a platform of cutting taxes and eliminating waste in city government. And that's one of the reasons I didn't get support from a lot of labor unions, for example. I think I have some center of gravity, call it common sense, call it acumen, whatever, to get a sense for what it takes to to get elected statewide, although I never ran statewide. But you don't have to go back and and mythologize about it. You can look at what Pataki did to do it in a much less democratic time. I get it. And you can look at these other governors like in in Maryland and in Vermont to kind of see how it might be done. And I think that I think that that if Zeldin had to do it all over again, he might say, well, the reason I can't do that is the minute you come out as not a hard right Republican, you can't win a primary. He might be right about that. He might be right about that. And then my argument is moot. And that's a sad state of affairs. That means people who believe in what I do, that extremism is a vice in this country. Um, can't get elected, and and that would would um would certainly be said. All right, so let's let's go to uh to to some calls here, and uh, while we have some time, uh, first up is Mike in New Jersey. Go ahead, Mike. Anthony, hi, Anthony. I really liked your take on the Cat Show the other day. Um, I'm a Trump supporter. 
I'm concerned about the future of the Republican Party. In the short term, I think it's okay with Trump and DeSantis, but I think after that, because of the age of our Republicans, the the, the average voter, I'm concerned about the younger generation and how the Republican Party might be not extinct, but maybe won't be around in the near future with uh, how old our citizens are that are Republicans. Uh, just wanted your take on that. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting take, Mike, and, and I appreciate it. Thank you for calling. I mean, look, as soon as we think we know what's happening in these realignments, it turns out we're wrong. I mean, after election 2008, when there was this, was it 8 or 12? I think it was 12, when there was this autopsy done by the Republican Party. It says, all right, we're losing communities of color, blacks and Hispanics. We have to reorient the party. An effort was made to to find middle ground on immigration. Republicans walked away from the table, et cetera. Well, today, one of the biggest growth areas in the Republican Party is Latinos. You know, one of the big overperformances that Trump did and Republicans have done recently is with Latinos. Now, you are right. Demographically speaking, in terms of age, younger voters are trending more and more Democrat. I get that. And I also think that as the country gets more diverse, being a party of like, you know, all white people is going to be a little bit of a problem. But it is hard in order for the Republicans to lose to lose ground. That would mean Democrats are gaining ground. And I don't really see that we're doing it to be honest. And look at our look at our our folks. Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Jim Clyburn, Steny Hoyer. Look at these. These people are all 70s, 80s. I mean, one of the appeals of the AOC, and I did a whole episode about kind of understanding where she's coming from, although I'm not a big AOC person, was that she does have this appeal to younger voters. But I think that it is, I think that that some level of approaching the middle is where the Republicans are going to have to start tacking towards. I think they're starting I think they're losing a lot of people who see themselves as casual, casual political voices. They're not obsessed or maybe they're not even listening to a show like this. And I think when they turn on the TV and they see what's going on, they see the January 6 hearings and they see the craziness. They're like, I don't understand what's going on. And they click it right off and turn TikTok back on again. But um, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Uh, Next is Frank in New Jersey. Go ahead, Frank. Are you there, Frank? I, I can. Your your line isn't great. Let me put you back on hold and see if we can get your line straightened out a little bit, and then we'll get back to you. Uh, Louise in New Jersey. Louise, are you there? I am a first-time listener. You have a very nice way about you on this radio. Thank you, Louise. Appreciate uh, but it. I, I am a truth supporter. We've been told a hundred times that Nancy Pelosi did not listen to President Trump's request to have the National Guard Stand by. Then we see her begging for the National Guard to come out. I need to know the truth. Did she not listen to President Trump, or is that a fabrication? Well, at first, I appreciate you calling. Was keep calling us and keep listening. Um, all we know is what is that there was zero testimony from any of the person people at the White House um, that there was any effort by Donald Trump to call anybody to ask for anything. And we have call logs from the White House. We have the people that make his calls. We have the deputy chief of staff at the White House who testified. We have records from the Secret Service. We have no signs. And what we do have is testimony, the opposite, that he was asking why there needed to be metal detectors and and things like that and how his people won't go through metal detectors and the like. So there's a lot of evidence. Contrary, now we have live actual I mean, we, you know, we have records. The thing is, some things are, are harder to fake than others. We have actual phone records of, of, of who got called. But, um, you know, look, I, I, I can, I can, look, we, we, have, we have a caller online. Let me, let me go ahead and take her because she disagrees. Judy in Manhattan. Go ahead, Judy. Are you there, Judy? Okay, Judy, let's do, is, is Frank back up? Do we have Frank again? Let's try to get Frank in again. I'm here. Can you hear me? I got your cloud and clear now. Thank you for your patience. Well, no, thank you. And I appreciate the show. Honestly, I'm on the other side of the aisle from you. But I think you're very respectful the way you uh, conduct yourself, whatever that's worth. Uh, I I am taking issue with you uh, as far as saying that you believe the Democrats are better on the economy. And I'd just like to tell you why I don't believe that to be true. I mean, you looked at Carter going into Reagan. Carter was a time of malaise. 
hyperinflation. Same thing happened here now. I mean, you you can agree with Trump, not agree with Trump, but on the economy, I think it'd be hard to take issue on him. He had record low unemployment among African-Americans, women, Hispanics. We had positive GDP growth. We were energy independent. You had uh, Republicans that were putting forward bills for balanced budgeting our federal budget. Uh, and I think the Republican philosophy is more down the line of give the people the money, trust them with it, and then we'll be able to tax the growth on that. Where I think the Democratic model is give the government the money and they'll decide where it's best to go and they'll try to stimulate where they believe they want to do that. Um, why, why do you think they're better? I'm just curious. Well, I I think what I said in my intro, and thank you for calling me, Frank, I, I, what I said in the intro is I think right now if Zeldin would argue on the economy, I think that it would benefit him. I was actually making the other argument. Now, I, I said that I have a disagreement. I think that it, what it comes down to, and we've talked about this a little bit on the show, is w- w- what role you think government should or should not have in the fact that we have become a country where the power, money, Influence is concentrated in fewer and fewer and fewer people's hands. And when you have tax policy that says, let's give those same people more influence, let's give them more money. When you have fiscal policy, when you have financial policy, when you have government policies that do that and, and the, 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 the tax cuts during the, during the uh, Trump years were a good example of this. They disproportionately went to the very, very well to do. I think that we have some evidence now that that does not work particularly well for people, the rest of us. I mean, is it really a a sign of success in a democracy when the top one and a half percent control 40 percent of our of our economy? I just don't think that that's good for democracy. I think it's good for democracy for middle class people. I mean, it's a simple question, I would say. And and I, I wonder how people would answer this question. If you could it give a 2% tax increase to the top 2% in order to fund a 10% tax decrease for everyone else, wouldn't you do it? And if the answer is yes, you're a Democrat. That's basically the bottom line. Would you give a 2% tax increase for the top 2% to give a 10% tax cut for everyone else? That's basically the philosophy. Now, you may say, well, no, no. I want uh, I want Jeff Bezos to have more money. I want uh, who are these other uber rich people to have more money and more influence. I just don't think it's great for our country. Now, all that being said, right now, just the same way Donald Trump probably lost in in good measure because of COVID and the economy was in the absolute crapper, um, and just the same way that Barack Obama got reelected because he took over an economy that was the worst that it had ever it had been in forty years and turned it around. And just because, you know, and Bill Clinton got reelected because he produced the first surplus in how God knows how long. And just be, and we threw out uh, a George W. Bush because he, he wasted money, drew up the deficit, got us into expensive wars without paying it, gave tax cuts without, without paying for them. I think you can make these arguments either way. I'm a Democrat for those reasons, but the point I was making, if I'm a, re- if I'm running for office today, I'd rather be a Republican. Because the Democrats are in charge and the economy is not great. So that's uh, that's what um, um, next up is uh, is Stefano in Queens. Go ahead, Stefano. I'm sorry, in the Bronx. Hey, hey Anthony. How are you? I'm well, Stefano. So I am kind of I'm not going to say I'm on the opposite side of the aisle because I'm actually independent. And uh, I kind of leave. I've always been a little bit more fiscally conservative and maybe socially, you know, uh, libertarian, you know, in the way that I can see how there is a need in society for certain things. And I've always been willing to give up a bit. But, um, you know, I always also see things on a way like, uh, so here, here's the man, I'm going to get to the point because you don't have a lot of time. So here's the point. So basically, I think we're going an insanity route of keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result. I mean, we've had, um, we've had a complete turnaround here from Republican to, uh, Democrat. And like I said, I am not I'm not necessarily a big fan of Republicans. As a past Republican, I actually have more of a, a, an axe to grind with them because I feel that I've been betrayed by them time and time again. I'm actually jealous and envious of uh, the coalition on the other side. And whether they're right or wrong, they don't care. They stick together. And I got to respect that. But um, 
like I said, we, we keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result. We, I mean, you know, we could keep throwing out numbers that benefit our conversation, but at the end of the day, uh, if we do go across the United States and do look at blue states and blue cities, we know what the problems are. They're there, and it is the policy. And like I said, I'm all for... Um, I'm all for helping the other hand, but, you know, it's kind of when you get on the plane, you know, when you get on the plane, the first rule they tell you is pretty much against, um, it's kind of against everyone's morals because everyone wants to help their loved ones, their spouse, their kids. That's really what they want to do. But at the end of the day, when you get on a plane and they tell you in case of danger, the first thing you do when mask comes on and you put it on yourself. Well, I think that's right. Well, Stefano, I appreciate that that was a lot there, and it's good to go to a break after that. There, I think that any time you draw conclusions and say, here's what's going on in blue parts and here's what's going on in red parts, to a, a large degree, the policies we have in Washington, these are national problems, these are national policies, and some of them are good, some of them are bad. I, I would agree with that, but I want to say something else. All the easy stuff is done. Now we have tough problems, we have to come together, and I think that happens somewhere in the middle. See what I did there? See you on the other side. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's The Middle with Anthony Weiner. 77 WABC. Spandau Ballet. I'm Anthony Weiner. This is The Middle, 77 WABC. Every week you can hear us between 2 and 3. So I like that song. I admit it. I mean, listen, it's white people doing soul music, but i doing their version of it. WABCradio.com is where you can stream it and always on the Red Apple Podcast Network. We're talking about lessons that we can learn, Democrat and Republican, and I think you can hear it in my voice. I, I, I mean, I can do I can do the traditional left right argument, Democrat Republican argument, but I'm not. My heart's not in it the way it used to be. And it's not because I don't believe the things that I always believed. It's that I think that sometimes we lapse into these discussions almost reflexively, without acknowledging that look, there is a lot, a lot that I think we can kind of agree with. At least in principle. And I'm not suggesting, I've never suggested on the middle that we leave our ideology or our political affiliations at the door. I haven't said that. I said that what we should do is take the the kind of fringe voices in both of our parties and say, isn't there a conversation we can have in the middle that would be more productive? And maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Judy in Manhattan, go ahead, Judy. You've been waiting a while. Uh, my My question is about truth. The whole truth and nothing but, and the uh, uh, January 6th investigation. I wonder, if it is true that Pelosi, Schumer, and the Washington mayor refused the 20,000 crowd controllers from the president. It's not. If they, if, they, if they knew that violent protests were planned, and they knew that government agents were in the crowd and not going to be examined, and her daughter was the uh, videographer, uh, uh, editor in the White House whose video no. played. No, stop, uh, stop, Judy, stop. stop. Look, 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 if we assume, if we assume pigs flew out of my butt, what is, none, none of that is true. You did an almost complete list of things that are not true. Let's just look. I don't want to, anyone can go look at the January 6th hearings. I have not dwelled on them on this show. I've thrown them in every once in a while, little observations of things you might not hear other places, just my little, my little, what did George Carlin call them, brain farts, my little ideas. But I haven't really stressed this because I know it gets people animated. If you want to find out the truth about January 6th, just go watch the hearings. Go watch the testimony. It's all Republicans. Not a single Democratic witness the entire time. It's all Republicans. And if you want to know who sends out National Guards, they're the executive branch. Who calls out, who set, who the Secret Service is, it's the executive branch. Who is the FBI, it's the executive branch. Who Bob Barr works for, the executive branch. 
Schumer and Pelosi don't call out anybody. Now, you did see video, and, and Alexandria Pelosi, she's a videographer. She follows her mom's around. She does things. I'm sure she was just as surprised as anyone else when all of this went down. Well, what difference does it make if it's her or some random person with a, with a phone? It doesn't change what happened. At the other end of that phone was the vice president of the United States. <laughs> he, he was trying to figure out how to call out whoever needed to get called out. But uh, I don't want to get bogged down on that. I want to get bogged down on that. Uh, Deborah in Bay Ridge, go ahead, Deborah. Thank you for waiting. Oh, thank you very much, Anthony. I, I just want to say that, um, you know, I, I think of, I used to listen to Ed Koch, who called himself a liberal with sanity, and you know, I always right. appreciated that. And I'm 75. I became a Democrat when I was old enough to vote. And during during this administration, the Biden administration, I just couldn't take it anymore. So I didn't want to go over the republic. I didn't want to register as a Republican. I'm a registered independent, so I can't vote in primaries. But the, my point is a couple of things. Um, I'd like to see ca- campaign finance reform on the table, and I'd like to see term limits on the table. But also, I appreciate what you have to say because – because the media is always like it's one extreme or the other, and that's very simplistic thinking. Deborah, and I have you're, to, I ha- you're exactly right. I mean, and that last point is an important one. I mean, we live in this environment that, Deborah, thank you so much for calling. That was a terrific call. And I don't know if we're going to get to any more, but that was a great way to end it. Look, we live in this environment that what the media wants is conflict, what they want. And, and I want to say, even here, we get into that. We lapse into that sometimes as well. And one of the great things about John Katsimatidis, and he and Margo have kind of stressed this, and, and Chad Lopez have this thing, you know, you hear the, these people's names a lot. One of the things that they have said is they just want to have good, interesting conversations. It doesn't have to be the same thing. And one of the reasons we're doing very well on this station is they give oxygen for shows like mine to come on and say, listen, I'm not going to do that kind of a thing. But if you look, if you look at the examples that Deborah gave us to finish on, Ed Koch, you know, he famously said that, you know, if you agree with me on 10 out of 10 things, on 7 out of 10 things, you should vote for me. If you agree with me on 10 out of 10 things, you should have your head examined. And Deborah said, you know, look, I changed because of Biden. There's another famous line. You know, they say a Democrat is a Republican who's been victim. No, a Republican is a Democrat who's been a victim of crime. Long way of saying that people go through evolutions in their life. They go through changes. They go through things that they think about differently. I would probably be described as a very progressive member of Congress when I was there. Now I probably would not win a primary in my district. <laughs> that's that's the way things have gone. But that doesn't mean we can't get together here every Saturday from 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock and have conversations that are a little bit different. And based on the feedback we're getting, based on the calls, based on the letters and the emails, and, and, and who's listening, it seems like we're striking a chord, and hopefully we can have more of that. And we'll have something similar coming up at the top of the hour, left versus right. We don't punch each other in the nose we have conversations we're a couple of friends we like doing it we come from different places but i especially want to express my gratitude for you for being here on the middle and we'll see you on the other side with left versus right